You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. Sixteen lectures given at various locations between the 5th of January and the 26th of December, 1911. Lecture 1 is entitled The Diverse Eras of Humanity's Evolution and Their Effect Upon the Human Bodily Sheaths, given in Mannheim on the 5th of January, 1911. It has been some time since we were able to hold a branch meeting here in Mannheim, but today we may take up this task once again. Over the past few months, my dear friends, you have been attentively and eagerly absorbing the more important ideas and insights of our spiritual scientific worldview. It is therefore perhaps not inappropriate to speak today about something that on the one hand can direct our gaze to the whole scope of our spiritual scientific movement, but on the other also gives us the opportunity to evaluate a little the spiritual knowledge we have acquired, in particular as it relates to the human being and his evolution, to appraise it, if you like, in the service of something to which all human beings should be dedicated, and which, for anthroposophists in particular, should assume a distinctive form by virtue of their insights, by virtue of the feelings that they can gain through the spiritual scientific worldview. As you know, my dear friends, humanity's evolution advances, progressing through eras and epochs, and each such era and epoch has its own particular mission. In the history of humanity, we can distinguish longer and shorter eras, and in each period in turn there are particular points at which the true task and mission of this age must not be neglected or overlooked, when it must be fully embraced. In successive eras, as we can discern, tasks are required by the worlds of spirit, tasks particular to this or that epoch, and then, for us human beings, it is a matter of acting rightly, so as to know something about these tasks, so as to take up into our souls an awareness and knowledge of these tasks. We live in an age when it really is an urgent matter for a number of people to gain knowledge once again of what today or in our present era needs to be done first and foremost in the spiritual domain. I would like firstly to draw your attention to just two epochs that closely concern us, one of which belongs to the past and much of whose spiritual riches and effects still extend into our present age. The second epoch, on the other hand, has scarcely begun. We stand at the beginning of a new era, a shorter cycle or epoch of humanity. We stand, as it were, at a critical juncture, and this is why it is especially important to understand the nature of these two eras a little. 
The first comprises roughly the epoch that began with Augustine and ended as the 16th century was dawning. In esoteric science, we regard this period as extending from Augustine to Calvin. Then comes a subsequent era comprising the period from Calvin through to the last third of the 19th century. Now we stand again at the beginning of an era with new challenges and tasks, and meeting them will be extraordinarily important for humanity's immediate future. Let us therefore form a picture of what commonly and especially occurs at the start of new periods in evolution. As one era passes over into the next, something grows old, outmoded, and something new and fresh dawns. Something goes into decline, while the other is germinal, starts to root and grow, begins to shine like the dawn of a new day, the sunshine of a new era that is arriving. And the distinctive thing about such a transitional period, as you know, people speak in various ways of, in quotes, transitional eras, but today it really can be said that a transitional age is arriving, is that human culture must start to be informed with new forces. To characterize this, I want to consider a great mission for all humanity, the rise of Christianity. If we picture how Christianity arose, we must say that those at the pinnacle of culture rejected it. Yet these same cultural leaders had reached a point of decline. Try to form a picture of Roman culture and its incipient decline, and try also to picture the kinds of communities to whom Paul preached. They were people who, with naivete, if you like, but also with fresh powers, stood outside the prevailing culture and harbored a living sense of what must come. They did not really figure amongst that culture's full flowering. New forces were coming to birth, but appeared sometimes even amongst the lowest orders of society. Having developed for a period the complex social existence of higher influential echelons of society must decline again, and in particular the prevailing knowledge and disciplines with their concepts, ideas, and so forth arrive at a point when they can no longer develop. Then something new emerges inevitably, rises from the people, and we can observe a radical change at work. In certain respects today, we again stand at such a moment of upheaval. The scientific ideas achieved with such dedication have actually come to a point where anyone with insight must say they are faltering. The scientific concepts and ideas promoted and perpetuated by the mainstream are now on the brink of decline. And in fact, the whole way in which people pursue cultural life, the mainstream of this cultural life, is in great decline. I'd like to outline very roughly and bluntly the symptoms of this decline, which is really proceeding apace now, symptoms that can be observed by those who have any awareness of it. If one has participated in cultural life in the past, as it came to expression in literature, books, and so forth, and in science, then one will have grown up with a certain sense of seriousness in regard to these pursuits, a seriousness that is nowadays already seen as outmoded, a seriousness that is no longer understood. 
The whole tone of weekly journals, for instance, was very different in the 1870s from what it has become. If we can say this, it was far, far more dignified. In those days, within the cultural mainstream, people held very particular views about our relationship to drama, to lyric poetry, and so on. In those days, too, you could write poetry or drama of less strict standards. Plays, for instance, that were written for little festive occasions, more as light entertainment or for fun. Sometimes these showed talent. Students especially performed plays that showed talent. But as one grew older and gained an overview of literary schools, one found that works were now valued that had once been regarded as having only ephemeral value. These same things gained literary and cultural acclaim. I don't wish to cause offense by naming names. Today we have reached a point where published trivialities are now the order of the day. Whole bookshops are filled with them. Even thirty or forty years ago, writers would have thought it a waste of ink to write such stuff. When you're in the midst of a transition and upheaval like this, you don't judge things severely enough, but cultural historians will one day characterize the end of the nineteenth century in such terms. We are currently facing a deterioration in traditional cultural life, and this could easily be demonstrated by the decline in scientific theories. We should not be surprised, therefore, if what is now to arise as a new spiritual and cultural movement and is to give human evolution a new impetus meets with little interest from mainstream culture. When those who move in the latter circles regard anthroposophists as associations of semi-idiots, as largely very uneducated folk, and so on and so forth. Footnote. The lectures in this volume were given before Steiner separated from the Theosophical Movement and founded Anthroposophy. All references to Theosophy have therefore been changed to Anthroposophy. See also remarks on this split by Marie Steiner in Publisher's Note on page 13. And a footnote. This is inevitable in every age of transition. Fresh forces have to rise up from below, and what springs and germinates in this way will become essential in a subsequent era to really develop a new upward momentum. Now I spoke of two eras. The period from Augustine to Calvin was primarily one in which all human soul forces, all human powers, sought to become more inward. In all fields, a greater inwardness was apparent during these times. Outward science was pursued to a lesser degree, and the human being focused less on outward laws of nature and natural phenomena. At the beginning of this period, with Augustine himself, who in a sense prefigured our own spiritual scientific view of the human being's configuration, we find the idea of the influx of supersensible powers that employ the human being as their instrument. In the further course of this epoch we encounter remarkable mystics, such as Meister Eckhart, Sussos, Johannes Tauler, and many more. While outward science receded during this period, there comes to the fore another singular way in which people encompassed nature with a brilliantly intuitive gaze.
We see this enhanced in figures such as Agrippa of Nettesheim. Then we encounter others like Paracelsus and Jacob Böhme, who appear as the fruits of this deepening of the human soul during those centuries. Such a current in culture can only last for a certain period. It rises, culminates, reaches its zenith, and then declines again. Usually every such current is superseded by something that in some respects appears as its counter-image. Indeed, the subsequent centuries are like a counter-image of this current. Gradually, humankind forgets the picture of the human soul's inwardness. Times arrive when science achieves its endless triumphs. Great figures, such as Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo, appear, followed in the 19th century by those such as Julius Robert Meyer, Darwin, and so on. A plethora of outward facts holds sway. And yet, people at the beginning of the new epoch are different from those who come later. Someone like Kepler, for instance, who exerted such a decisive influence on the physical sciences, was a pious man and felt deeply and inwardly committed to Christianity. He discovered three laws, known as Kepler's three laws, which basically are nothing other than laws of time and space clothed in mathematical formula. In other words, they are something entirely mechanical. And yet this same man spent far more time than he did on these discoveries in explaining the configurations of the cosmos at the time of the mystery in Palestine, the interrelated positions of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars at the time Christ was born. It was on such matters that Kepler's thoughts were focused. He bequeathed to humanity his purely mathematical discoveries about the science of astronomy. But what he carried inwardly in his deepest heart remained his own inmost concern in an age that served only outward life. Or consider Newton. Universally known for his discovery of the laws of gravity, his Christianity is scarcely ever mentioned. Hackel, for instance, ignores this when he speaks of Newton's decisive influence. Yet Newton was such a firm Christian that he wrote a commentary on the Apocalypse in his quietest and most sacred moments. But he could not bequeath this to humanity. Instead, he left us with the purely mechanical law of gravity in an era that was dedicated to an outward grasp and comprehension of natural phenomena and this era ended with the last third of the 19th century. At this point, an era begins that must necessarily appear as a counter-image to the preceding one, and the task of preparing this new direction, which is to work on so that everything we have often spoken of may arrive, falls to the spiritual scientific worldview which must once again engender a deepening of the human soul. Every age must work in a different way from previous ones. It would be mistaken simply to study what was once the right approach in the epoch extending from Augustine to Calvin. We can dwell upon such times, but we must know that today, following the era of natural science, we have to seek the world of spirit in a different way. 
Now, is there anything, apart from abstract considerations, that can enable us to discern the need to grasp the world anew in every succeeding epoch? Consider Paracelsus, for instance. He really is an unfathomable mind for our modern, very trivial and external forms of inquiry. He had deep insights into the secrets of healing, of medicine. It is possible to learn things of wondrous grandeur from Paracelsus if you study what he had to say about healing various illnesses. But let us imagine that a physician at the very pinnacle of our modern culture were to study Paracelsus with a view to making practical use of his directions. In relation to certain major things, this would lead to very true results and insights. But some things would be of no use any more to a modern physician. If he were to use some of the medicines that Paracelsus recommends, this would be of no use since human nature has changed already since the 16th century. This is because everything in the world changes and progresses. Outward things do not conform to the gradual development of our arbitrary knowledge. They advance, and it is our task to follow their progress with our knowledge and powers of inquiry. We have to learn anew, continually, as Paracelsus learned. And if we proceed as faithfully as he did, we will, in some respects, find quite different results than he did. In our era, the tasks that face us are very much spiritual ones. Now, I would like to outline in broad strokes how, as it is written in the stars, human culture must progress in the near future. It is not up to human beings alone to give this culture its direction. Old views will not be able to match the radical change in actual circumstances. Things take their course, and spiritual science has the task of describing this course. It shows us how we can understand our era. We stand at the dawn of an entirely new form of human life and thinking. Human culture has three especially important aspects, which are religion, science, and thirdly, human society, and coexistence in general. The feelings that people develop for each other, all that unfolds in social community. These three aspects are the most significant, and so it is especially important to trace in succeeding epochs what form these three aspects must assume, religion, science and social coexistence. And here there are certain requirements that we must simply understand as human beings, which do not lie within our power to determine. Why must religion, science and social community keep changing from epoch to epoch? They do so simply because human nature changes. It is not insignificant to learn how our human nature consists of various levels or aspects, that we consist of physical body, life body, and astral body, with sentient soul, rational or mind soul, and consciousness soul, should not be a merely theoretical consideration, knowledge that can be acquired by just a few as a handy classification. We learn about these because they have a deep significance for human life. And you can have an inkling of this deep significance if you think back to the predominant role 
say, of the sentient soul during the Egyptian and Chaldean era. Higher beings primarily worked upon this aspect of human nature. And in the Greco-Roman period, the period during which Christianity first arose, all influences upon humanity from divine spiritual heights were working upon the mind-soul. And today these influences work upon the consciousness-soul. We will understand nothing at all of the human being's relationship to the great powers at work in the world if we do not know how this human nature is configured. What, after all, are we preparing as we concern ourselves today with spiritual scientific insights? In our time, the consciousness soul is primarily being cultivated. All outward thinking and knowledge, all utilitarian thinking, this thinking that accords with principles of usefulness, depends in a certain respect upon developing the consciousness soul. And this is already being permeated by the intrinsic light of the spirit self. Now, the remarkable thing is that in our age we have two currents that flow side by side, one that is tumbling into decline and one that is now rising toward a future blossom. The one that is tumbling toward decline has not yet reached its nadir. And from this still grow great human discoveries that will have a huge future. This also has its blessings. It is true that humanity will long continue to reap blessings from what is moving toward decline, but the kind of thinking that invents zeppelins is one wedded to decline, whereas the form of thinking that concerns itself with the configurations of human nature is that of humanity's future. But these two do have a common meeting ground, as we can see in all realms. I'd like, first of all, to offer you a very practical example, that of monetary transactions. During the 19th century, this changed to a very considerable degree. There was a huge turnaround. If you look at the period directly preceding the last third of the 19th century, all financial speculation attached to the individual person. It was Rothschild's purely financial and speculative genius that conducted money everywhere to and from financial centers. And if we study the history of the large banking companies, we find exemplary instances everywhere of how monetary transactions arose entirely in accord with the type of human nature that was founded on the consciousness soul, on the individual person. Then this changed. But nothing much is said about it since it is still in its infancy. Nowadays, by contrast, it is no longer the consciousness soul that predominates exclusively in financial transactions. Today we find a kind of aggregation or centralization. Share capital, the company, the association, something that goes beyond the individual person. Try to see what is only now just beginning, but will increasingly become apparent. Today it is almost irrelevant which person is in charge. The processes that people have developed for monetary transactions are already working in an impersonal way, are acting by themselves. Here in a descending momentum you can see how the consciousness soul reaches over toward the spirit self. 
Here it manifests in a current of decline, but it manifests in the current of regenerating life, where we seek what a committed individual has achieved, where we seek through inspiration to gain the help of the powers who will once again furnish us with inspiration from the world of spirit. Here, too, we pass from the personal to the transpersonal. Thus we can discern common characteristics in our era, both in the currents of decline and regeneration. Especially, however, we must beware of attending too much in any era to what emerges as authority. As long as we lack spiritual insight, this can seriously mislead us. This is particularly true in one area of human culture, the field of materialistic medicine. Here we can discern the decisive influence of authority and the ever-increasing claim to authority, which is in fact far, far more dreadful than any kind of medieval tyranny. We find ourselves in the very midst of this tendency, which will keep increasing. People may mock the ghosts of medieval superstition, But we can ask if anything much has changed. Has this fear of ghosts faded? Aren't people actually far more afraid of ghosts than they were back then? What happens in the human soul when people are told they carry 60,000 bacilli on their hands is far more terrible than generally acknowledged. In American statistics have been calculated about how many such bacilli can be found on a man's mustache. At least the ghosts of medieval times were, one might say, decent ghosts. But modern bacilli ghosts are too minuscule to grapple with. The fear invoked by them is only just beginning and leads in health matters to people succumbing to a really terrible belief in authority. Everywhere we see the character of this transitional era. It becomes apparent if we can observe phenomena in the right way. But now let us ask what the doctrines and revelations of anthroposophy teach us about the further development of these three major areas of life. How must things develop in future? And how do we need to work so that the creative, fruitful spirit self can be rightly introduced into the consciousness soul in a spiritual way? The prophetic stars, that is, the teachings of spiritual science, tell us the following. In the whole way in which people have tried in preceding centuries to introduce religion into human culture, it is a mingling of two things, one of which cannot be called religion at all in the strict sense, while the other is indeed religion. What is religion in reality? We must characterize it ultimately as a mood of the human soul, a mood that opens to the spiritual, to the infinite. We can characterize it well by starting with its simplest manifestations, though these can later be raised, enhanced, to the highest level. If we walk across a meadow and our soul is open to all that grows and blossoms there, we will feel a sense of joyfulness for the glories revealed there in flowers and grasses, for each gleaming bead of dew. Finding such a mood within ourselves so that our heart opens is not yet religion. It can only become religion if this feeling intensifies into a sense of the infinite behind the finite, of the spirit 
behind sensory reality. If our soul feels communion with the Spirit, this mood corresponds to that of religion. The more we can intensify this sense of the eternal within us, the more we cultivate religion within ourselves or others. But in a necessary evolution, such impulses that lead human feeling and sensibility from the transient to the everlasting have become mingled with certain views and ideas about the nature and properties of the supersensible realm. And in consequence, religion has, in a sense, become linked with what is really the science of the spirit, with what must be regarded as a science. And today we see how, in this kind of ecclesiastical faith, religion can only be sustained if certain doctrines are preserved at the same time. Yet this gives rise to what we can regard as rigid dogmas, fixed adherence to certain ideas about the world of spirit. Such ideas ought naturally to develop and progress since the human spirit itself progresses. True religious feeling ought to rejoice at such progress, since it reveals the glories of the divine spiritual world in ever more grandeur. True religious feeling would not have delivered Giordano Bruno up to the stake. Instead, it should have said, How great is God that he sends such people to earth and reveals such things through them. Then, alongside the religious aspect, it would inevitably also have acknowledged the realm of scientific inquiry, a field that extends both to the outer world and the world of spirit. Progress must necessarily adapt to the human spirit, which itself progresses from epoch to epoch. As the 16th century arrived, a great change occurred in relation to this quest for knowledge. Before the age of Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler. What was taught in universities and great centers of learning had assumed strange forms. Aristotle is certainly a great source of wisdom, but what he accomplished embodied the greatest learning in his own time. The medieval period greatly misconceived his thought, and ultimately no longer understood at all what he had meant, and yet his doctrines continued to be followed and taught. To avoid misunderstandings and to show you how knowledge must change from epoch to epoch to accompany the evolution of the human spirit, I would like to speak in more detail about something that occurred in connection with Aristotle. Aristotle's work was embedded in an age when people still had a sense that human nature possesses not only blood and nerves, etc., but also an etheric body. If one were only to depict the etheric body, it would appear very different from the picture given by modern anatomists. In the era when Aristotle was working, no great importance was attributed to this flesh-and-blood picture, since people in those days were still aware of the etheric body. If we were to draw the latter, we would have to see a center here where the heart is, and then draw rays important ones emanating from it, directed toward the brain and connected with the whole way in which a person thinks. If we consider the etheric body, 
we see how thinking is regulated from a center located close to the physical heart. And Aristotle depicted this to make clear the singular nature of thinking. Later, people no longer understood what Aristotle meant. They began to confuse a word in Greek that corresponds to our word in quotes, nerve, but which is decisive for the organism of thinking with material nerves. They thought Aristotle was speaking of physical nerve cords when in fact he was describing etheric currents. As the materialistic age dawned, people no longer understood Aristotle. And so you can see how they taught his doctrines in a completely erroneous way. They stated that the main nerves issue from the heart. And then along came scientific materialistic research, as introduced by Copernicus, Galileo and others, and it was discovered that the nerves issue from the brain, the physical nerves and spinal cord. And so they said that Aristotle was wrong. Thus Copernicus, Galileo and Giordano Bruno disputed the doctrines of Aristotle. You see, medieval Aristotelians did not adhere to what Aristotle actually taught, but to what they imagined he meant. And thus it happened that Galileo showed a friend of his who was an Aristotelian that the nerves in a corpse issue from the brain. Yet this friend preferred to believe Aristotle rather than his own eyes. He believed in his own mistaken view of Aristotle's teaching. And so we can see how at this time the stream of spiritual science as promulgated by Aristotle, the science of the etheric body, was led over into material science. Its merits should not be denied. It has brought great blessings and benefits to humanity and does so still. But now we are in an era when we must once again ascend to the spiritual. A time is swiftly approaching when science must once again learn to understand the intrinsic nature of spirit, when it will need to become what in esotericism is, is called, in quotes, pneumatology, or teaching of the spirit. What was science in the last century? The doctrine of abstract ideas and natural laws that no longer had any connection with the reality of spiritual life. Science now stands at a point when it must become pneumatology, when it must return to the spirit. This is written in the stars of anthroposophy. And since religion always invokes a mood that opens to the spirit, science and religion will inevitably work in harmony in eras when science integrates the spirit and thus becomes pneumatology. Then science can properly explain the life of spirit and sustain and support the mood which in turn should live in religion. What is now beginning stands in crass contrast to what has now lapsed. Let us, for example, consider how the waning, declining principle manifests in the various evangelical faiths. People sought to exclude scientific thinking altogether from the realm that is meant to be dedicated to faith. Think of Luther and Kant. Kant said that he had to suspend knowledge in order to give full scope to freedom, immortality, and God. Here science was focused 
on outward sensory physicality and excluded a supersensible spiritual aspect to reality. Therefore, in this view of Kant, it was necessary to preserve untarnished the traditional sacred testaments. There were good reasons for this. But now a different age is coming, when anthroposophy leads us into the world of spirit. And now we will see the gradual approach of something that must be developed and accomplished through anthroposophy's support and illumination of science. Religion and science will once again go hand in hand in the next epoch. Science will gradually come to have validity for all. It will become comprehensible to all. For this reason, the parallel course of religion and science that is now beginning will give rise in the fullest sense to what we may call individualism in religion. Each separate heart will find its way into the world of spirit in its own individual religious way. A common and shared science of the spirit will serve to guide and accompany each person in the most individual and personal way in the realm of religion. This will be the hallmark of our age. Once again, remarkably, we can see here how a personal moment points to something transpersonal. The symptoms of decline also show this. And how do we discern this pointer to a transpersonal level in certain ecclesiastical contexts? What did it mean when, in a certain church, its guardians appealed to inspiration? Bracket, there's a gap in the text, close bracket. Things have to be seen in relation to their spiritual character. Much that is apparent today, especially in religious life, in the various confessions, points to this luminous influx of the spirit self into what we call the consciousness soul, whether this be in a waning or ascending momentum. This is apparent, especially in the third of the three named spheres of human culture. Here an insight and understanding will spread of which modern pragmatism as yet has no inkling at all. A principle of this new understanding will be that the happiness of an individual can never be purchased at the cost of the lesser happiness of others. In future, therefore, the personal moment will be led on, led over into something transpersonal, egoism, will be led over into something that surpasses egoism, into a realm where human beings are united. Gradually, no one will wish to be happy without knowing that others are equally so. This mood, in stark contrast to the pragmatism of today, is slowly emerging. There is only one means to engender this mood, and this is to gain knowledge of the true core of the human being and its nature and composition as spiritual science teaches us. We have to know the human being if we wish to be human. We see these three things at the start of their development. What is the role of spiritual science? It should teach us to understand everything that is inevitably coming. Let me state in radical terms the stance we can take. Let's assume hypothetically for a moment that today's anthroposophy, which is still a very small current in the world, were to be regarded as deluded fantasy by those who encounter it and suppressed by them. 
Imagine that all who embrace quote, anti-sophy close quote, were to make it simply impossible for anthroposophy to thrive, for science tends in that direction. Then people would be unable to gain any understanding of what has been described to you here as a necessary evolution, one inscribed in the stars of science, religion, and human coexistence. Imagine that people isolated themselves from any understanding of such things. What state would humankind be in in that case? Human beings on the earth would then be like some herd of animals that has found itself in very alien climatic conditions where they cannot survive. In consequence, these animals would waste away in atrophy. Gradually they would succumb. Similarly, in such a case, human beings would succumb to decline, to decadence, to premature downfall, though not through extinction. Much worse than extinction, they would turn animal-like, and so only their lower passions, drives, and desires would remain. People would be interested only in their food, their fodder, and they would employ all their thinking to produce this food. They would build factories to produce the best flour, the best bread. They would build ships and zeppelins to convey produce from faraway lands and to supply products they wished to enjoy. They would employ enormous ingenuity upon, quote, increased cultivation, close quote, which is the term they might use for culture. Endless intelligence and ingenuity would be used, but all, ultimately, directed to putting food on the table. What really does the term cultural advance, in quotes, mean today? If we send telegraphs only to say, quote, I need so many sacks of flour, close quote, this focuses all our ingenuity on producing something that really only serves what we can call the animal in man. Spirituality and intelligence are two totally different things. The materialistic age leads to a culmination of intelligence and, in quotes, intelligent culture. But this has nothing to do with spirituality. If we assume that humankind were to be isolated in this way so that truly human qualities are excluded, what would the gods have to do? They would say, quote, here is a race that has failed to understand the mission of the earth. Now we must send down a different race, a lineage of souls, who can fulfill the earth's mission. Yet small circles will develop understanding for the necessary spiritual life of the future, and so humankind will bring the mission of the earth to fulfillment. The sixth epoch, which will succeed the fifth post-Atlantean era, whose culture is dedicated to the consciousness soul, will be fulfilled by a small circle of human beings who spread far and wide throughout the rest of humanity. Yet this can only be accomplished if human free will comes into its own. You see, once the capital I has taken root in human nature, the human being must also develop free will to develop this I. And it depends on each separate individual whether he wishes to bring understanding to bear on spiritualization or whether he prefers to pursue the downward path that modern humanity is taking at present. 
Social practice must develop toward a fulfillment of the principle that the happiness of the individual cannot be gained at the cost of the happiness of others. If people refuse to understand this, they are cultivating a downward path of evolution, one that brings with it aridity and animalization. Today we can say that we face a decision as human beings, either to desire and seek spiritual science, or not to do so. And this means either to seek the ascent or the decline of humanity. We need to have this sense in everything we do. We should feel that our karma has placed us into humanity's evolution like a new material, to offer our powers as elementary forces that must work their way upward. If we gain this sense, then anthroposophy will soon become practical feeling, practical sensibility. And in our heart we'll take root an awareness of what we are actually doing when we undertake seemingly insignificant work in anthroposophical branch meetings. We should do so not as some kind of hobby on the side, not as the eccentricity of a few, but in understanding of the deepest needs of a newly resurgent epoch. I wanted to show you how things are interrelated, so that we can properly understand human progress. Let us recall that we are self-aware beings, that we must therefore know what we are, and that only by virtue of self-knowledge can we fulfill our destiny in the world. All those, therefore, who do not wish to know anything about human nature lack the will to place themselves rightly into the world. Let us recall the words of someone who had an intimation of much that is today emerging as anthroposophy, Johann Gottlieb Fichte. In his lectures titled On the Vocation of the Scholar, he once spoke of his lofty ideas. When he came to write a preface to these lectures, it occurred to him that publication of this book would meet with a general sense that the ideas contained in it are very fine but impractical. How, he wondered, can such thoughts be introduced and integrated into life? Yet Fichte was fully aware himself that life is continually governed by ideas. Let me give an example. Who built the Simplon Tunnel? No engineer today can work without differential and integral calculations. So, basically, it was Leibniz, the inventor of differential and integral calculation, who has built all the tunnels and bridges of our time. The spirit everywhere governs everything in life. And we can learn from what Fichte has written, can learn to fortify ourselves, strengthen our anthroposophical awareness. When people say our ideas are eccentric and impractical. Fichte says that it is common knowledge that ideas cannot be directly implemented in life that we hold this knowledge in common with others who object to our ideas and that maybe we even know it better than they do. But the fact that these others wish to know nothing at all about ideas only proves that the wise guidance of the world, the sway of divine powers, will not be able to count upon them. Therefore Fichte asks that a benevolent natural world in which they do believe, may send them sunshine and rain when they need it, good digestion, and if possible also a few good thoughts. 
we can to some degree fortify ourselves by saying this. We know that as anthroposophists we must cultivate understanding for what must inevitably come. May a benevolent nature give the others what Fichte describes, but also what they need in the spirit, though they believe they have no need of it. May the spirit give them ever keener and keener thoughts, so that they no longer regard spiritual science as fantasy, but recognize it as an important impulse needed by humanity. The end of Lecture 1